the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. New Testament says be devoted to one another, honor one another, accept one another, serve one another, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, submit to one another, encourage one another, build up each other, pray for one another. Live in harmony with one another and offer hospitality to one another. And folks, that's just a sampling of what we're supposed to do. Paul told the Ephesians to speak the truth in love. When we try to apply this, it's hard to put these two things together. We have a very hard time keeping the balance between loving and correcting, between spiritual combat and caring for people. This is why you're going to want to listen very closely to today's message. Pastor Steve is taking us into the book of Jude to remind us that we are commanded to contend for the faith. Maybe you haven't read Jude in a while. You may want to get your Bible out and read through it. At the same time, he is also talking about the one another passages in the New Testament. Here at Verse by Verse, we don't shy away from teaching the whole counsel of God, even when it might be easier to say things that everybody wants to hear. These are teachings that we need to hear. Our Bible teacher is Pastor Steve Kreloff of Lakeside Community Chapel in Clearwater, Florida. Thank you for being a part of today's broadcast. Here's Pastor Steve. So, in verse 3, Jude reveals that the key to dealing with these false teachers is this. The people are to contend, he says, which means to, to battle, to fight, contend earnestly for the faith. The faith is the body of truth that's been given to us. It's the apostles' teaching. He's not talking about your personal faith. Whenever there's a definite article before faith, it means the body of truth, the body of revelation. Contend earnestly for the faith or the truth, which was once and for all handed down to the saints. This is simply another way of saying that we are to cling to and fight for the truths that the apostles already have taught. Because what they taught the church is the substance of our faith. That's it. There's no more coming. What we have is what we're getting. That's it. Now, notice that Jude says that the body of truth that the inspired apostles taught the church in their letters and books of the New Testament, he said, It's been given once and for all. Do you see that? Once and for all. What that means is only once, never to be repeated. Never to be repeated. Once and for all, it's been given. God's word has been given to God's people as a sacred deposit. There's no new revelation that's coming from anyone outside of the original apostles. And I include Paul in that. Now, healthy, healthy churches understand that, that the Bible is our authority. Period. It's our authority. We believe that it's to be our priority. Why is it our priority? Why is it so important? Listen, because everything in the Christian life flows from an understanding 
of Scripture. It's our foundation. Without the Bible, we're lost. Without the Bible, then we go back to the days of the judges when every man did what was right in his own eyes. The Bible is our authority. It's our standard. So the church of Jerusalem was healthy because they were a teaching church. But Luke gives us a second mark of all healthy churches. Not only was this church a teaching church, Luke also tells us it was a loving church. So we read on in verse 42, we read they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles teaching. And then he adds into fellowship. Now, what we learn from this statement by Luke is that the people in this Jerusalem church were not only learning about their new faith, but they were putting what they had learned about their new faith into action, into action by loving one another. That's what he means by this. See, fellowship is simply another word for sharing or having things in common. That's precisely what it means. In fact, the primary thought behind this Greek word, which has actually infiltrated our language known as koinonia, this word that we translate fellowship, the heart of this word means commonness or commonality. You can really translate it that way. It's commonness, commonality. And when it's used in the New Testament, it always speaks of some kind of sharing, something that you're sharing or, or giving, something in common. Now, the members of this brand new church at Jerusalem recognize that all of them, by virtue of their faith in Christ, they have been brought into a unique relationship through their common faith, their fellowship faith in Jesus Christ. And now they were part of something brand new, of a new divine family. Now, that's very interesting. I'll tell you why. Because this church was made up exclusively of Jewish people. Church of Jerusalem, all Jewish people. They're all sons and daughters of one man called Abraham. They're all part of a family in that sense. But now they understood that by becoming believers in the Messiah, they had entered into a new kind of fellowship, a new kind of family and relationship with one another that did not exist prior to salvation, even though they were all part of the Jewish family. In fact, this is the first time in the New Testament that this particular Greek word for fellowship is even mentioned. And there's good reason for that, because this kind of spiritual fellowship centering around a common faith in Christ and the unity brought about by the indwelling Holy Spirit was brand new. It had never happened before. That's why this word's not mentioned even in the Gospels. This is brand new. Didn't exist until the church was formed on the day of Pentecost. And these new believers understand this brand new fellowship. Why? Because they have been just taught this by the apostles. They didn't figure this out on their own. They have been taught this by the apostles. And because they realized that they now shared a common life in Messiah, they didn't hesitate to share their possessions with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. Notice verses 44 in Acts chapter 2 and verses 45. This is the outworking of what Luke means by they continued in fellowship. It says, and all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. There's that word again, fellowship. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Now, they demonstrated their fellowship. Note this by their love for one another, which was expressed by selling their possessions 
and property and giving the proceeds to those in the church who had needs as those needs became known. See, here was a a church that understood that the heart of fellowship is to love others. How? By being generous, by being sacrificial in giving to them. By the way, they didn't sell everything right away and then just put it into a common pot. They didn't do that. No, they sold their property and possessions as needs became known. This wasn't a forced communism that everybody has to make the same thing. It wasn't that at all. Here's a need. I'll sell some property. I'll give you the money that I got from selling it. That's how it worked. Now, this is the way that God intends his church to operate, whether it's in the first century or the 21st century. We are to love one another by giving whatever is necessary in assisting one another. Listen to these profound words by Kent Hughes as he enlightens us about what true Christian fellowship really is. And he also warns us about a false view, but prevalent view of fellowship. Here's what he says. Fellowship cost something in the early church in contrast to our use of the word fellowship today. Fellowship is not just a sentimental feeling of oneness. It's not punch and cookies. It does not take place simply because we are in the church fellowship hall. Fellowship comes through giving. True fellowship costs. So many people never know the joys of Christian fellowship because they've never learned to give themselves away. They visit a church or a small study group with an eye only for their own needs, hardly aware of others, and they go away saying there is no fellowship there. Truth is, We will have fellowship only when we make it a practice to reach out to others and give something of ourselves. What a a great, great truth. Let that sink in. Fellowship is about giving. It's about loving others. See, a healthy church is a church where the people don't simply attend on Sundays and then go home and never really relate to each other. Rather, a healthy church is when we're a part of each other's lives. In the sense that we are constantly giving ourselves and something to one another as needs arise. This is why the New Testament has so many terse commands called the one another passages, in which the New Testament tells us how we are to treat one another by giving ourselves, whether it be giving forgiveness to each other or material resources or Honor, I want to read to you. I'm not even going to give you the passage because I don't want to mess up the flow of this. But I just want to read to you some of the ways that the New Testament says we are to relate to one another. If you need to know these passages, just see me afterwards. All this is backed by Scripture. New Testament says be devoted to one another. Honor one another. Accept one another. Serve one another. Be kind and compassionate to one another forgiving each other, submit to one another, encourage one another, build up each other, pray for one another, live in harmony with one another, and offer hospitality to one another. And folks, that's just a sampling. That's just a sampling of what we're supposed to do. Listen, churches where the people love each other, they obey these commands. They are not characterized by divisiveness, by factions, by church splits, but they treat one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. They relate to each other as family, family members, and family members, as we all know, 
stick together and help one another. That's the beauty of a family when it's functioning properly. I realize that there are some families who don't function like that, but generally speaking, that's what family members do for one another. They are always there when nobody else is is there. If there's a need, they come to meet that need. You can always count on a family member to assist you. That's the way it's to be with God's family. They assist you and minister to you out of love. Now, this is where we left off last time we looked at the Church of Jerusalem. We noted that as a model church, this wonderful church was a teaching church. We endeavor to be that. This wonderful church was a loving church. We endeavor to be that. But there is a third mark that Luke tells us that characterized this church and its spiritual health. And that is, note this, it was a Christ-centered church. A Christ-centered church. We read on in verse 42 They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and prayer in telling us that this Jerusalem congregation devoted themselves to the breaking of bread and prayer. Luke is simply saying that this church observed the Lord's Supper regularly and they prayed together regularly. Why do I say that? Well, the expression, the breaking of bread, does not mean that they simply ate their meals together. Now, they did eat many of their meals together, but that's not what he means here. It says that they continually devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. It would appear that what Luke is teaching us is that they regularly observed the Lord's Supper. They came together and remembered Christ's death for them. Now, let me tell you why I believe that's what Luke is saying. Two reasons. Number one, because he mentions this in verse 42. Verse 42 is a very significant verse because in this verse, Luke is listing the spiritual disciplines and observances of this church, not their eating habits. Their eating habits are not listed as a spiritual discipline. The reference of the breaking of bread comes between the godly practices of fellowship and prayer. He's not telling us how they ate. He's telling us about the Lord's Supper. Secondly, notice verse 46. It says, day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Now, notice that the practices of breaking bread and taking their meals together are presented as two separate items, not one. So this would lead one to conclude that what happened was that these folks would have a common meal together, and then they would take the remaining bread and wine and observe the Lord's Supper. Probably like a a potluck dinner, which was called in the early church an agape feast, and then they would have the Lord's Supper as they observed and remembered Christ's death together. But not only were these people at the Jerusalem church devoted to remembering the death of Christ, the very foundation of their faith, but the last spiritual discipline that Luke tells us about concerning this church is that they were devoted to praying together. They got together and prayed. Now, folks, let's put this together because this is very important, and here's the point. All healthy churches are like this in the sense that their congregations are committed to keeping Christ as the focal point of their church. They're not independent of him. They're not self-reliant. They're not not 
self-sufficient. This church remembered Christ's death regularly, always bringing to mind the very heart and substance of the faith that Christ died. This is the gospel. He died for us. And then they prayed together. So they were constantly looking to the Lord, not leaning on their own understanding. In other words, this church was centered and focused on Jesus and not themselves. By observing the Lord's Supper, as we said, they forced themselves to remember what it was all about, why they even had church, who they were. They remembered his death on the cross, salvation that was purchased for them. Then they prayed together. They were admitting that they had needs, that they were not independent of him. They were dependent upon the Lord, not their own resources, their own understanding, their own methodology. They leaned upon Jesus and they looked to him for his enabling strength and help. See, One of the marks of a healthy local church is that we constantly look to him and depend upon him, not ourselves. And frankly, that is a great challenge. That is a great challenge to every Christian. We face that as individuals. We also face it as a local church. All evangelical churches face this because it's relatively easy to talk and preach about Jesus as Lord, as the all-sufficient one, but in reality, to lean upon ourselves and leave him out of our daily issues. The Bible warns us about the danger of doing this by highlighting a self-sufficient church, profiling a church that was just like this as a warning to us not to be like this in our own lives and in our church life. So I invite you to look at Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We read in verse 14 to the angel. An angel here probably means like the leading pastor, the the pastor teacher, the primary speaker in the church. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, right? The amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this. Now, this verse introduces us to a church that existed in the first century in a city called Laodicea, now in modern Turkey, but then called Asia Minor. Here's a city called Laodicea. As you'll recall, in our recent State of the Church address, we looked at another one of these churches that are mentioned in the book of Revelation, the church at Ephesus. That's the church that had left its first love. But even though the Ephesians had grown cold in their love for Christ, the Lord still commended them for some things, as as you'll remember, He commended them for their hard work of doing good deeds and their stand against evil and false teachers. There was something good about uh, that the Lord could say about the church at Ephesus. But concerning the church at Laodicea, and there are seven of them mentioned in Revelation 2 and 3, the Lord has absolutely nothing good to say about them. This is the only church that he says nothing good about them. There's nothing to commend them for. Of all seven churches... But this church alone, nothing good to say. And the reason for such harsh condemnation for this church at Laodicea is that the entire congregation, not just a few people, the entire congregation had become self-sufficient and self-reliant. There wasn't anybody in this church that wasn't like this. Now, they may have talked about Jesus. They must have preached the Bible. But they were simply going through the motions of playing church. They were totally independent of Christ. They were a true independent church. As they lived their lives as if Jesus didn't even 
exist. Now, let me show you the problem with the church at Laodicea and how Christ's message to them challenges us as individual believers and as a church body. It challenges us to be focused on him and to be centered on him, not simply in word only, but in deed. Verses 15 and 16, Jesus said, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither cold or neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. And the Lord says that this church was lukewarm spiritually because their, their works indicated that they weren't hot. What does that mean? It means that they had no heart for him, no, no fire going on in their, in their hearts, no passion, no zeal, no enthusiasm for him. They were spiritually listless. But on the other hand, he said, you're not cold for me either. What does that mean? Well, it means they weren't unresponsive. They weren't totally unresponsive. They weren't totally unconcerned about the things of God. They weren't cold, freezing in their hearts. They weren't antagonistic towards him. Instead, the Lord characterizes this church as lukewarm, just tepid, neither hot nor cold. And note this. He says it nauseates him. It nauseates him to the point that he's going to spit them out literally. It means, I don't want to ruin your appetite for lunch, but I'm going to vomit you out. The flu, the bug that many of you had, that's what was going on. The Lord would have vomited them out of his mouth. Now, let me explain, because they understood exactly what he was talking about. And a little bit of background will help us to understand this. The city of Laodicea was located near two other cities of that day. And those two other cities were noted for their special sources of water. There was the city of Hierapolis that was noted for its hot medicinal springs that that offered therapeutic healing for people. The nearby city of Colossae, we have a book to the Colossians. Colossae was noted for its cold springs that offered refreshment to people. But the city of Laodicea had its water piped in through an aqueduct that was about four miles away. And by the time it reached this town, it was disgustingly lukewarm. One writer described Laodicea's lukewarm mineral water as so unsavory that visitors to the city often vomited after drinking it. That's the imagery. And that's precisely what Jesus said was his reaction to the lukewarmness of this church at Laodicea. Listen, nobody likes lukewarm water. At least I don't know anybody who does. If you like coffee, you want a hot cup of coffee. If you want iced tea, you want it really cold. This lukewarmness of the church at Laodicea, Jesus said that in their hearts, their spiritual condition was like the water of the city. It was lukewarm. And their lukewarm hearts made him nauseous and therefore, he was going to vomit them out of his mouth. Now, what did he mean by, by this? That's a rather graphic way of putting it. Well, he certainly didn't mean that he was going to cast them away from him in the sense that they would lose their salvation. And we say that with great dogmatism and authority because Jesus has promised in his word that he who comes to me, I will never, ever cast out. We come to him for salvation. Listen very carefully. For a church to be spit up, to be spit out, vomited out of Christ's mouth is for the Lord to spit it out of existence. It's gone. 
He removes it as a witness for him because in reality it is no longer a witness for him. Other than name only. It's become a useless, ineffective church. And since it serves no godly purpose, it's good for nothing. And it makes Jesus sick. If we could put it that way. Lukewarmness is the one sin that makes the Lord sick. To the point that he just vomits it away. To my knowledge, the city doesn't exist. This church doesn't exist anymore. As many times as you read the words one another in the New Testament, it sure makes you think that Christians and churches are supposed to be getting along. That's not always the case. Could it be that we let our own self-interest get in the way of our fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ? One another means that it works in both directions. We don't just respond to what others do for us. We need to love the people around us proactively without expecting anything in return. Is that ever a challenge for us in our culture? You bet it is. I hope this message has been a help to you. Check out our website for more helps and resources. That address is versebyverseradio.org. You can call us at 727-239-0306 for prayer or counsel. We could sure use your help if you were able to send a gift to keep this ministry on the air. That's about all the time we have for today. For Pastor Steve and the staff, this is Jerry Pruden inviting you to join us for our next broadcast of The Truth of God's Word on Verse by Verse. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.